welcome to the In Systems We Trust podcast with Mark E. Murray. You're listening to season two. In Systems We Trust dives into all things systems and processes and interviews the professionals who are using them to change the landscape of their organizations every day. This podcast is fueled by Ditto, a team that is on a mission to eliminate team burnout by implementing systems and processes that streamline your business's growth. Are you ready for more clarity? Here we go. Welcome back to another episode of In Systems We Trust. My name is Marquis. I'm your host. And today I'm speaking with Marcel Petapal. Marcel is a CEO and co-founder of Parakeeto, a company dedicated to helping agencies measure and improve their profitability by streamlining their operations and reporting systems. He's also the fractional COO at Goldfront, an award-winning creative agency in San Francisco working with brands like Uber, Slack, Keep, and more. As well as a head strategic coach at SaaS Academy by Dan Martell, the number one coaching program for B2B SaaS businesses in the world. In his work as a speaker, podcast host, and consultant specializing in agency profitability optimization, he's helped hundreds of agencies around the world improve profitability and cash flow in their business. When he's not helping agencies make more money, he's probably watching The Office or Parks and Rec or a never-ending loop of eating breakfast foods for every meal of the day. Welcome to the show, Marcel. Thanks for having me, Marquis, and I appreciate you reading my entire bio (laughs) word for word. That was uh, torture for you, I'm sure, and thank you for indulging me. That's definitely the most fun bio I've ever read, and I just have so (laughs) many questions. First off, you know, are you okay? When do you sleep? You are probably the busiest person I've ever spoken to. Uh, I mean, I, I know about your work at, you know, Parakeeto. We've been, you know, we've been connected for a while now and had some exchanges, but you've got a lot going on. First question is, how do you keep it all straight? Uh, it's, uh, there's no such thing as free time in my life. Uh, unfortunately, that's been the way it's been for a few years now. And um, it's not sustainable or healthy. I've just come out of a quarter that... <laughs> It was a reminder that like, okay, there are limits to how much I can push myself. Um, But yeah, it's really calendar design. Deliberately designing the calendar is the only way that this works. And there is, uh, there's no such thing as free time between 530am when I get up and about seven or eight o'clock at night when I finish work. Um, Every minute is accounted for whether that's uh, when I'm eating or using the washroom, going to the gym or mostly working. And um Yeah, I'm a very busy person, but I'm far too busy. And so that's the theme for this quarter is to try and buy back a bunch of time and become a normal human again. Okay. Tell me more about the the fact that every minute is accounted for. You're you're talking about your calendar. What does that look like in your calendar? You're getting to 530. I'm assuming this is a workout of some sort. You're reading a book. Is that actually in your agenda for, for the day? Yeah. Yeah. So I get up at 530. I have a working block from 530 to 730. So that's usually when I just like get the most important things done. Uh, No one's awake. No one's bothering me. I don't look at my email or anything like that. So that's been really, really great. Uh, Then I go to the gym at 730. I come home. Then I have another working two hour working block. Then I start meetings. So we have team meetings usually from 11 to about one in the afternoon. And then the afternoons are sales calls, client calls, really kind of any external calls. 
And then uh, unfortunately, what that usually ends up meaning is that there's a bunch of things I have to wrap up at the end of the day. So when finishing calls at uh, 5, 6, 7 p.m., there's usually a, at least an hour or two worth of things that I got to tidy up and get ready for the next day. So that's uh, typically the design of my calendar. And then some of these other things that I do, fractional CO work and coaching, there are blocks of time throughout the week that are dedicated to that. And if it wasn't for that, then yeah, this would all be completely unmanageable. But the fact that I've got a, at least some guides uh, in my calendar and an assistant that helps kind of move every all the Tetris pieces around uh, really does help. Wow. And we're going to get into Parakeeto and, and the work that you do, but I'm, I'm so interested in this. And one more question, if I can, um, what drives you to, to do that? I mean, you're, you're so dedicated. I mean, you have, you know, consistency in your routine and your calendar and a mentor, you know, um, you actually know him, our, our, our good friend Kyle Dutka, you know, once encouraged me to think of like what my North star is. What is that reason that I'm going to get out of bed every day to do these things continually? Like, what does that look like for you? You know, it's interesting. I, I think I became an entrepreneur for all the wrong reasons. Um, uh, some people can relate. I had a chip on my shoulder. I had something to prove to people. I wanted to prove to myself and people around me that I was competent and better than others. And, and you know, <laughs> I wanted to be rich before I was 30. Like the motivations to start this were not the right ones. But as I've kind of been able to let go of a lot of that stuff, um, I think now I'm realizing that what really fills me up is all of the impact that running a business, I think, can have on society. Um, I've we have employees that have bought their first homes, uh, have immigrated to Canada, you know, have like created their life that they want because they have gainful employment with us. They've had career development, they've learned new skills. Um, that's extremely rewarding to me. And then the impact that we have on our clients, of course, we, we don't just make agency owners rich and, and allow them to buy new yachts. Their team typically works less overtime after working with us for a period of time because they have better visibility into the future. They don't have to lay people off the second that they lose a big client or they lose an RFP. There's more stability and sustainability in that business. And that impacts all of the team members, the stakeholders at the executive or ownership level. And it usually means that they can serve their clients better too. So, um, it's just the impact I think that is driving me at this point. And the bigger the organization gets, the bigger that impact gets. And that's, I think really what keeps me going. And, and how cool for you to see that impact, like play out in front of you yeah. as it pertains to your team members. Very cool. Okay. So Parakeeto, I'd love to know before we jump in, where did the name come from? And then secondly, <laughs> like, I know the backstory. I know where Parakeeto came from and, and how you got your start, but our listeners probably don't. So can you kind of bring us up to speed from conception to where we're at right now? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I'll try to give you the very brief version. So I my first business ever was an agency. It was called Real Tours Media. Don't cringe too hard at the name. We were doing real estate virtual tours. <laughs> so okay. uh, yeah, kind of a play on words. And it, that business was short lived because it wasn't very profitable. At that time, the real estate market looked very different than it does today. Houses were sitting for three years in Moncton, New Brunswick, where I lived, the average price uh, of a home was like $130,000, $140,000. Uh, real estate agents were not willing to invest a lot of money in 3D virtual tours. And so I didn't have the margin to outsource the work and scale the business. And so I walked away from it very early. And that was an experience that really um, put me in touch with how hard it is to measure some of the basic fundamental metrics of a small agency with the tools that are out there today. Um, fast forward a few years, you know, I got into software. I, you know, got connected to Dan Martell, who became a, a strong mentor of mine. And at, one day, he kind of connected me to a friend of his named Jared, who's running a software development agency out of Boise, Idaho. And Jared said, "Hey." 
I spend hours every week building spreadsheets, trying to answer these simple questions. There has to be a better way to do this. We got to solve this problem. And that was really the impetus for Parakeeto. It really was something that came out of his work and his agency and where his agency is called Royal J. They just had this theme where when they had an internal project, they would give it a bird theme name and Parakeeto was given to our project and we just never bothered to change it, to be honest with you. Uh, so it lives on today over four years later. Um, we've been through many adaptations. We started with a software thesis We've now moved more to a consulting model with technology kind of behind the consulting. So it allows us to do things at a rate that smaller agencies can afford that would otherwise cost um, big agency money. And that's been going extremely well uh, over, especially over the last year. Great. And so, yeah, yeah, profitability uh, you know, and visibility has always been the theme for Parakeeto, right? Is giving agency owners the ability to, you know, better estimate on, you know, their, their future projects based on historical data that they would gather through, you know, tools like Harvest and things like that. So why, why the pivot from software and, you know, on, on the product side to, yeah. to this, this service offering that you're delivering today? I think it was the realization that the problem in our industry is not a lack of tools. There are so many great tools for managing projects and tracking time. And, you know, you're very familiar with some of them and you're a, a certified partner with one of the best ones, Asana, which we also use. Um, we don't need to build a better, uh, a better widget. The problem that we kept running into, especially when we were selling our own software, was people would buy it and they would say, this is great, but I don't know how to use it. I don't know how to connect this to the rest of the things that I'm using. I'm not sure how to structure my data. There were these far more strategic and fundamental questions that were causing the issues. And a lot of people, you know, we would have this recurring conversation of, we've tried five or six different PM tools. We've tried a bunch of different time tracking tools. None of them have worked for us. And when we really dug into it, there's no reason why any of those tools should have failed. They failed because there wasn't the right holistic approach to strategy and data schema design and maintenance to make sure that those tools were actually capable of doing the job that they were hired to do. And so when we kind of sat down um, uh, one quarter and asked ourselves a question, like if we were just to start over, what would be the ultimate solution to this problem? And blank slate, we don't even have to worry about if there's a business that can be built around this, just what would the best solution possible look like? It had to include some amount of consulting and strategy. And so in having that conversation, my co-founder and I, we came up with this new model. We went out, uh, talked to a few clients about it. They basically begged us to do it for them. And there was no turning back at that point. And now we've been able to kind of help that full spectrum of, you know, really helping agencies understand the strategy behind what are we measuring? Why are we measuring it? What kind of conversations does that support? Exactly. How do we calculate these things all the way through to designing how the data needs to exist in their business for those answers to be available and then how their tools are going to create that data. And then finally, the, the maintenance piece of this, which is as things change in the business, how do we make sure that that doesn't break the reporting system, undermine historical data, and really undo all the work that goes into getting this thing set up in the first place? Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of how we got here. Wow. We're going to, we're going to dive into that process a bit later, but I love what you said off the top that, you know, tools will not fix the problem, right? That's something that we see so often. And, you know, we often say, and, um, to our customers is that it doesn't matter what tool we're using. Like it could be Asana, it could be Trello, it could be teamwork. It doesn't matter, but we, at some point all have to agree on the tool that we're going to use and how we're going to use it. That's it. Like it all, it all comes down to process. So I, I love that you're, you're thinking in that way as well. And so when it comes to, um, you know, this problem that you've identified, I mean, you were an agency owner, I was an agency owner, you know, we, we've discussed the similarities in the past uh, across different agency owners, and there's this common problem. And so 
when you were starting out and pivoting into this service space, were you bringing this this knowledge or these new findings to your customers, or are they the ones coming to you saying, "Hey, I I don't know if I'm profitable. I don't know where my my team's time is going or where my resources are going. I need your help." Like, what really came first? And what does a, you know a good fit client look like for you to be able to identify that and then yeah. move them through to the next stage? Yeah, um, it's a great question. I mean, what certainly came first was all the problems that we were hearing from agency clients, and really the the reason it took us three years to finally kind of land on this model was mostly because we were stubborn and getting in our own way, and we really wanted to be a SaaS company for again all the wrong reasons because it's harder and it's sexier and all these other things um but what we kept hearing consistently and what we still hear consistently are kind of the same issues right the fundamental issue is we're having conversations all the time that we wish we had data to support we're asking questions like are we making money on clients and projects if so which ones and which ones are better than others what patterns exist where do we need to pay attention to scoping pricing and process and then a lot of people issues can we take on this project what happens if we close it do we have enough capacity when do we need to hire and really the real-time conversation of like well if we close this deal then we do need someone if we don't close this deal then we don't need someone and what if we push this hire back by three weeks and all this modeling around capacity is something that people were really challenged with and then the benchmarking and the proper calculations, you know, things like utilization. If you ask 10 agencies how they calculate utilization, you'll probably get 10 different answers because it sounds like a simple metric. And then when you start asking the question of, well, what exactly is somebody's capacity? What's included and what's not included in that? Or what exactly is a billable hour? And what is and isn't included in that? These conversations get very nuanced. And so all of that was what we were kind of hearing over and over again. So that was kind of the fundamental issue. And then there was kind of those other four things I talked about. Do we have the right tools? Are they set up in the right way? Is our data schema the right you know, thing? Are we looking at the right numbers? And what does good even look like? What is a good benchmark for this? Um, and I think too many agencies just, they don't have visibility across the industry. And so they're like, well, I don't know, like this is what, how we're performing. Is this good? Is this bad? Should we, should we be punishing ourselves for this? Should we be celebrating? We're not sure. Um, so there's just a lack of clarity around this stuff. And this is what we've constantly been hearing uh, in the market today. Yeah, that, that is a common problem. Like the one that you, you mentioned about, you know, needing, knowing when to hire, when to push back, you know, can we bring on this person? And like, what does that all look like? Because, you know, with with the work that we do, I mean, you're you're only as good as your as your last deal, right? And so you're, you're waiting on the cycle is, is happening and you're having negotiations going back and forth and you have a high probability of this deal closing and you, you, you are ready, you're bringing on, you know, your personnel and your resources, you're lining everything up, you know, what conversation are you having with your clients when it gets to that point and they need to make a decision to hire and then something goes wrong and the deal doesn't progress, right? How does that impact business operations and these decisions that are being made based on, you know, these, these best guesses or these probabilities around closing the sale? Yeah. I mean, it, like usually we start seeing all of these kind of issues arise right around double digit headcount. And often it's, it's at the place where essentially the founder can no longer be the single kind of point of contact for everyone in the organization. Their ability to effectively manage the team has, has kind of been expended and they need to start installing their first layer of management. And so there's a separation that needs to get created. And in order for that separation to get created, there needs to be some way of measuring what's going on. And 
now there's a void that needs to get filled. Um, also, at that juncture, generally, the founder can no longer subsidize mistakes with their evenings and weekends, right? Like if we go way over budget on a project or, you know, we overpromise to this client or a deal gets lost and, you know, we've got to adjust some things like the founder is usually not capable of absorbing all of that anymore. And so it creates a responsibility and a need for real operations. Um, the other thing too, is that generally at that point, they've figured out kind of how to sell. And so they sometimes feel like they're experiencing starvation, but what they're actually experiencing is indigestion, right? And they just happen to feel very similar. I think we've talked about this before. So that's kind yeah. of the stage where you'll start to feel these symptoms early is around that 10 ish person headcount. And once you get up to the 25, 30 mark, then these people forecasting issues become far more important. And if you're listening to this and you probably know what this feels like, right? It's not having confidence that you can like really pull the trigger. You can really afford that person, not really being able to see that far ahead. And so you're having to use your gut, place bets, take risks that you're not sure make sense. And all of that adds a ton of undue stress, leaves you kind of lying awake at night, second guessing your decisions, which is just this whole other layer of stress and anxiety that doesn't need to exist in an already extremely stressful and anxious thing, which is running an agency. That's hard enough as it is. It's even harder when you make a decision or you have a meeting and you come to a conclusion and you walk away not really feeling like you're sure if that was the right call or not. Um, and so the data really just helps create clarity, create certainty, and also most importantly, empower other people to make these decisions because it's not just a gut call or a judgment call. It's based on numbers and it can become far more formulaic. And that means that you as a founder can start building a management team and giving them clarity on how to make the right decisions. That's great. Yeah, I, I love that. And something you said earlier around, you know, capacity, like we're, we're talking about numbers and data, and we're making a lot of these decisions based on capacity. We see someone that's at 90% utilization. And, you know, we say, we think, oh, there's more space there. But if I bring on another, you know, um, another client, then we're over capacity. I have to find someone else. So I'd love for you to define what capacity really is and should look like, because yeah. as you said off the top, you have your, your full day booked in there. You're accounting for workout time, travel time, bathroom time, breaks, like work time, team meeting time, all of it. What should we as agency owners, business owners be expecting of our team? And how do we really track that, that capacity to make sure that our people are in the right place at the right time and are being utilized? It's a great question and it's a big question. So let's yeah. kind of break it down. There's a couple of different ways Please. to look at capacity. We'll start with the fundamental way to look at it, which is the total capacity that you have um, for a given person in a given time period. And let's just look at a year because it's easy. For most people, uh, a capacity for a full-time employee is 2,080 hours per year. That's 52 weeks times 40 hours. So that's kind of your gross capacity number. And when we look at a metric like utilization, there's different versions of utilization, but the fundamental one that we look at is based on that gross capacity number. What we're really asking the question of is how much of the time that I'm purchasing from this person in an employment contract is being used for things that earn revenue for the business. And so we have to include in that number all the vacation time and holidays and all that inefficiency um, because there's a cost to that. And if we're not including it, then we're not seeing the cost of that in the utilization number. So gross capacity is the first one. It's very simple. It's how many hours per week, how many weeks in this time period, that's a person's total capacity. Then you have a second concept, which is delivery capacity. And this is how much of that person's time is theoretically available 
to do client work. And that's usually, you're, you're looking at two things there. What is kind of their weekly standard expectation? And so for a pure producer, we're usually looking at anywhere from 30 to 36 hours per week. And how you set that target depends on a multitude of factors, like how much time are you asking from the team for internal meetings and cultural things, et cetera? How efficient are your administrative processes? How many other responsibilities are you putting on these people? As well as how many clients and projects are they diluted across? If you have the luxury as a um, agency to assign your team to a single or maybe two clients at a time, then they can be far more utilized because they don't have to deal with as much context switching. So I've seen people that are, you know, 38 hours billable per week, and they don't have to work any overtime because they're a developer, they work on a single project for nine months at a time, and they just kind of come in, they do their work, they go home. It's very, very easy. Whereas if you're bouncing around between 12 different projects and clients, like if you're an account manager, for example, overseeing a big department, then your utilization is probably going to be a lot lower just because there's so much more inefficiency and in all the context switching. So it's hard to specify exactly what that target should look like. But for most pure producers, we're expecting anywhere from 30 to 36 hours of billable time per week. When you get into project and account managers, it's going to vary dramatically based on what is the scope of their role. Um, that's one of those titles that, you know, every agency, it's slightly different. Um, and it's going to mostly be determined by where are the inputs to the project plan the weakest. That's where the project manager is going to spend more of their time basically compensating for administrative inefficiency. So project managers and department leaders, you're usually looking for, if you're lucky, 20, maybe up to 28 hours of billable time per week. But a lot of that comes down to, again, how much other responsibility you're putting on them to oversee a team, manage a department, be involved in admin. Then for everybody else in the organization, salespeople, admin staff, owners, anything above zero is a bonus. The fundamental thing is at the end of the year, you should be able to spend more than 50% of the hours that you're paying for across the entire team on things that earn you revenue. If you can spend 50, 60, 65 on the high end percent of the hours that you're buying in a year on things that earn you revenue, then you're in a good position to have a very profitable business. So that's fundamentally what you're kind of looking for. So that was a big answer to a big question, but hopefully that creates a little bit of clarity that capacity is nuanced and it depends on the context and it also depends on what you're measuring. Hey everyone, it's me, Marquis. I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a bit more about Ditto. If you've been listening to In Systems We Trust for a while, you've heard firsthand accounts of how systems and workflows change the landscape of work for businesses and leaders across the globe. Ever felt like there just aren't enough hours in the day? Is your startup starting to grow and scale and you're wondering how your systems will scale with it? Maybe you're part of a widespread multi-level corporation that needs to update and overhaul its standard operating procedures. Well, if you can relate, Ditto can help. Eliminate team burnout, keep your best talent, and have a clear system in place to help you and your business achieve your goals. Visit thinkditto.com to learn more. Definitely adds clarity, but it also adds several other questions. <laughs> but um, one of the quick ones, hopefully you can answer this quickly, is yeah. what do you mean by, you know, earn you revenue, right? So you have a producer or a project manager, their goal yeah. is to ensure project success, keeping the project, you know, within budget. They're not, you know, on the the sales side, but, you know, the customer experience is very yes. important because there will be opportunities for upsell and referrals. So I'm assuming that's what you mean by yes. their, their spending time and things like that. Is there anything specific or a use case you can give us that would yeah. better describe how those support people, operations people can, you know, provide revenue opportunities for the company? 
Yes. So this is a really great question. We're really going to start to get into the definition of a billable hour, or as I like to call it, a delivery hour, because the word billable um, just has connotations on its own that make it more confusing than it needs to be. But any time that is spent moving a client deliverable forward is a delivery hour, which is, means that it earns revenue. And so the concept of earning revenue is selling actually doesn't earn you any revenue. It actually earns you debt in a sense, because when you sell a deal to a client, you're coming to an agreement, you're usually collecting some kind of payment upfront for that most people are. And now you actually have a debt. Now I have to do the work that I promised to the client before that revenue becomes mine. So it's everything that happens after the sale to move the project forward that is actually earning the business revenue. So it's basically time deployed against moving client deliverables forward, making progress on promises that have made to clients. That's what earns you revenue. And when you do your finances on an accrual basis, that's what this means. You're accruing the amount that you have earned based on how far along the different things that you promised to clients are. So that's really the definition of earning revenue and how we want to think about a billable hour um, as it's traditionally called, or as I like to call it a delivery hour. Okay. Very interesting. And all these things that we're considering, you know, can we expect the same or more from our contractors versus, you know, um, our, our full-time like payrolled employees, you know, where, where we're not needing to, sorry, for the contractors, we may not be needing to account for PTO, for example, are, are yeah. we still thinking about all of the, the, the subtle nuances in the day? Are we accounting for those things when it comes to capacity? Great question. This is a big part of the reason why I think a lot of uh, folks use freelancers, especially in the early days. And I think they're a very, very useful tool for creating what I call elasticity in areas of the business where maybe there isn't consistency of volume of work or there isn't a lot of certainty around the volume of work. Because that's the beauty. If you structure a contract with a freelancer where you're paying them by the hour, you're generally going to have them be 100% utilized in a sense because every hour that they spend should be you know, on billable or delivery time. Where that gets a little bit more complex, of course, is if it's a situation where it's like, I'm going to pay you for 20 hours a week, and then I'm taking on the burden of utilizing that time and making sure I have enough work to keep you busy. But usually the point of using a freelancer, or I I call it an elastic resource, is that you're not bearing the cost of when they're not utilized. You're only paying for the time where they are utilized. Therefore, you pay a small premium, sometimes a significant premium on an hourly basis relative to what it would cost you to have that person full time. But where there's inconsistency, it often ends up actually being less expensive than all of the time that's not utilized that you would have if you just had a full time person in that seat instead. Very interesting. Okay, thanks for answering that. And so let's get into it now. Like, what does this process look like? Where are we starting? We've identified the problems, we've identified the gaps that these agency owners are having. Where do we start? So I think for most people listening today, the first place to start is probably finance. And it, it's kind of counterintuitive. Uh, we exist because finance is not the, the complete solution to this problem, but it is probably the starting point for most people. It is the lowest hanging fruit because you're probably already bookkeeping. You're probably already getting accounting reports. You're probably already spending time and money on that. And a couple of simple tweaks could actually make that a lot more valuable to you Um every month that you get those reports. And so the first place to start is to make sure that you can identify a couple of important things when you look at your financial statements, ideally on a monthly basis. Those important things are 
the difference between your revenue and your agency gross income first and foremost. And so the difference there is really stripping out all the money that is coming into the agency that doesn't actually belong to you and that you don't need to earn with your time. So easy examples of this are like Facebook ad spend that you're you know doing on behalf of the client or print budgets or maybe you have white label vendors that you work with or a production agency that you outsource part of the work to. You want to strip all that money out because it would be like if I'm Airbnb and I consider our revenue to be all of the money that comes through the platform. Of course, we know that's not true. It's the 15% cut that I take in the middle. That's my actual revenue. So if I think that my business is, in this case, 85% larger than it actually is, I can make some really bad choices (laughs) if I have that conflated view. So that's the first thing is really identify and isolate how much of that revenue is actually yours to keep. That's your AGI. Um, The next thing we want to do is understand our margin on that AGI. And that comes down to isolating our delivery expenses. And that's mostly about allocating salaries to delivery. And the problem that most folks have is all of their payroll goes into a single line on the profit and loss statement. So all of your staff, your salespeople, your admin staff, the owners, all of the the delivery staff, they're all just kind of in one bucket. So it's hard to actually know, well, how much did we spend on payroll? And how much revenue did we earn with that deployment of payroll, right? What's our margin on that? You can't see it if it's all in one bucket. So you got to split that out. And then you also want to isolate shared delivery expenses, which is like tools that the delivery team needs to do their job like Figma or Adobe Creative Cloud or stock footage libraries, right? They're not just for one client, but without them, the delivery team wouldn't be able to do their job. That's usually another four to 5% of your AGI, but you want to isolate that and you want to try to keep it to around 40% of your AGI or less. What that means is you're spending 40 cents to earn $1 of AGI. So you have 60, 60 cents left over to run the business, pay for overhead and have a profit. So those are kind of the first two major things that you really want to be able to isolate and identify. Below that, as a bonus, if you can identify your overhead spending in three categories, sales and marketing, administration and facilities, um, and you want to keep those to 8 to 12% for admin and sales and marketing and 4 to 6% for facilities for a total of anywhere from 20 to 30%. If you can measure those things, then you can every month, 12 shots on goal per year, get a sense of is the business heading in the right direction. So that's the starting point. Start with finance, get that stuff cleaned up, send a clip of this to your accounting and bookkeeping team and sit down and figure out how to do this. But that's probably the easiest thing that you can do that's not going to need any changes to really operations outside of just some nuances on how you do bookkeeping. Okay. And is Parakeeto stepping in to offer these services or is it more of a, a, a consultation to kind of guide the finance team and the operators to look into these things, make some decisions and really take a look at the data? Yeah, great question. We are not an accounting firm, but uh, in our first engagement in an audit, we we do all of this to, we transform your entire profit and loss statement to get it into this format. And then we can provide that to you and you can give it to your accounting team so they can right size it. So we do advise the client's accounting or bookkeeping team on getting this tidied up as part of our process. Yeah. Okay. So what happens next? We, we've taken a look at finance. Yeah. So that's, um, that's the first step, right? So what we've gained by doing that is now 12 times per year, we can get a sense of how is the whole business doing and is the business fundamentally profitable, which is great. But the problem is we can only see that 12 times per year. We can usually only see it 15 to 20 days after the month is over. So we're always looking backwards and that data is usually pretty stale by that point. 
And it's very, very hard to actually get more granular and understand not just how is the whole agency doing, but how are specific clients, specific projects, maybe specific phases within those projects, how are those doing? And the cost of trying to get there with finance data is really, really high because there's a lot of complexity. And so that's when we start to look for other ways of measuring these things that are not dependent on financials that can be faster, less expensive, and give us a lot more detail without all the complexity. And the two metrics that we typically pay attention to there are average billable rate to start. So average billable rate is kind of a very high level way of measuring profitability and efficiency in in any kind of given area of the business. And it's simple. You take the amount of AGI that you earned for a client, for a project, for a week, for a month, and then you divide it by the number of delivery hours needed to earn that revenue. And that gives you an average billable rate. How much money did we make for every hour that we spent on this part of the business, time period in the business, whatever. And that's really useful because you can start to see patterns. You could, for example, say last quarter for our different service lines, what was the ABR? Websites were an average of 200, great. Funnels were an average of 175, cool. And maintenance retainers were an average of 120. Oh, interesting. That's far less profitable. Now you have some guidance on like, where do we go and focus and ask questions and get curious and maybe make some improvements to our process. So average bubble rate, super useful, super inexpensive metric to use to kind of get tighter, deeper visibility. And the second one is utilization. And that's really looking at what was our capacity in a given time period? And then how many delivery hours did we work? So you have a sense of, you know, are we getting close to using the amount of time that we need to on the team in order to be profitable? And what's cool is that if you take your utilization rate and your average billable rate, and you project that into the future, you can get a sense of, okay, are we going to hit our targets or not? How much revenue can we handle in a given period of time if these things stay true? And how does it change if we increase that rate or we increase the utilization? So they're really simple tools that we can use to run a lot of analysis and answer a lot of questions very quickly and very cheaply. And I'm loving this chat. You're getting me fired up here. <laughs> um, I, I want to know, like outside of those 12 times for the year, right? Like who ideally in the agency and how yeah. often, right, should we be looking at these things? Like, is this a daily occurrence? Is this a weekly <laughs> occurrence to make sure that we're trending yeah. in the right directions? And if we see something, we raise a flag and pull yeah. in finance, or we pull in the sales team. What does that look like? It's a great question. And so much of it is going to be gated by your time tracking cadence. Um, so if your team is really, really diligent about filling in timesheets and you have great culture around this and everybody kind of tracks as they go or they they submit their timesheets at the end of every day, you could run this analysis every day. Um, I don't know how much value there would be in that unless you're running very, very quick turn projects. If the rate of change was actually that high, then you might get value from it. For most people, this is weekly or biweekly that we're looking at average billable rate trends. So what that means is instead of getting 12 shots on goal, you get 52, 12 kind of really precise ones, and then 52, you know, higher level, but directionally accurate insights. So weekly timesheet cadences seem to be kind of the norm in the industry. So every week when the team submits their timesheets, now you have all the data that you need, ideally, to know what was our average bubble rate across whatever section of the business we want to look at and what was our utilization. And now you can start to get a sense of what's going on. So weekly is the cadence that I recommend. I recommend looking at this at a leadership level. And then on whatever cadence makes sense, I think average billable rate uh, numbers are really, really useful for the project management team to be reviewing. Um, usually on a biweekly cadence seems to be a, about the right rate, but again, depends on how quickly your projects move so that they can facilitate really productive you know, retrospectives or postmortems or whatever you want to call them, whatever you're doing, to and be guided about 
hey, this is a thing that's going really, really well, way better than everything else. Let's go figure out what's going on there that we can learn from and apply to the rest of the business. And here's some stuff that's not going well at all. Let's go dig into that and figure out what we need to adjust to get things trending in the right direction. Because without that visibility, it can be easy to get pulled into the wrong things or spend a lot of time trying to figure out what happened or arguing about why we think it happened instead of actually yeah. just getting curious and solving problems. And then someone like me just wants to get in and solve the problems right away when it might not be the right time. That's right. Or we might not have, or we might not have the budget internally to solve those problems right away. Or it just right? might not be a priority, right? It might be the difference sure. between taking something from 200 an hour to 210 where you have another project over here, another service line that's averaging 80 an hour. It's like, that's clearly the priority. We need to go fix that mm -hmm. first. Yeah. So good. Um, I, I want to break down just a scenario and get your thoughts on it. So as we're talking about timesheets, right, at, at Ditto, we are asking our team to submit weekly timesheets. And then come Monday morning, we're reviewing the hours and, you know, approving or, you know, asking questions. And we use um, both Harvest and Forecast um, to um, see our, our capacity and utilization, as well as time tracking and project budgets and all that kind of stuff. So we're looking at the hours and we're saying, hey, um, I mean, we're, we're probably not using it to the to the the most like uh, effective ways, but we're looking and we're saying, hey, this person spent X amount of time on this task for this client. The estimate was this, and then we're having a conversation, and then we're looking in forecast to see what their upcoming capacity is and what you know has been utilized so far, and we're just having conversations about that. We're also getting weekly um, emails or daily emails from Harvest saying, hey, this project is at, you know, 80% or 75% of, you know, um, the, the project budget. And so, like, w with this data, you know, what, what should we be looking for? How should we be processing this data to make those decisions and, you know, how can we really expand, and I'm asking personally here, how can yeah. we really expand upon the the activities we're doing weekly so we can be more effective and, you know, see, you know, increased growth and profitability? Yeah, it's a great question. And really what this comes back to is first and foremost, what's most important to you, right? What are the conversations that you're having that are most important to the business? And usually those have to do with projects and then they have to do with people. And third, they have to do with process. Those are kind of like your three P's uh, in an agency, projects, people, and process. And um, we have a model for this. We call it the agency profitability flywheel. And so there's kind of two feedback loops, and all of them together are one feedback loop. So it's like it's kind of this macro um, thing. But the first is, what do we think was going to happen and what actually happened? That's the first feedback loop that we want to get in place because that starts to allow us to see gaps in are we, you know, estimating things improperly? Is there like, are there some major gaps in the way that we make assumptions about client work? Or are there some major gaps in the way that we do things that we need to start paying attention to? And the reason that that's important is because without the ability to make good assumptions about client work, it's very hard to scale an agency because everything that looks forward depends on your ability to do that well, right? Resource planning, forecasting cash flow, forecasting capacity, without good assumptions about client work, all of that falls apart. And I think this is one of the things that, you know, I get some agency owners that they, you know, maybe they they take a value-based pricing workshop and they get a little hot and they're like, hey, you know, we're oh, super yes. profitable. So we don't have to carry about any of this stuff. And I'm like, okay, come see me when you have 25 employees and people are quitting every three weeks because you're burning them out because you, you like you don't have your shit together. 
you can get away if you have the pricing. Like, yes, you can you can probably get pretty far without losing money. But at some point, the skeletons in the closet are going to come out to haunt you because your operations can't scale without a good feedback loop between assumptions and actuals. So that's the first thing. And it sounds like you're paying attention to that, and that's good. And it's just a question of trying to remove as much friction of that as possible so that you can start to push it down the organization as you scale so that project managers and department leaders are all empowered to go and get that information on their own without it having to go through this kind of lengthy or rigorous process. And it sounds like you're doing a good job on that. The second part of that is now the people feedback loop. So what's really important is the conversations happening around that information. It's one thing to see it, but in order for the rubber to hit the road, the right people have to get around the table and start asking why. Why was this so much more or so much less time than we expected? Did we scope it improperly? Did we not ask the client the right questions? Is our process weird or inconsistent or there's like an inefficiency there? What is the problem? And that should inform process improvements, which... Between those two things, getting feedback on what actually happened and then refining the process, things should get more consistent over time and those assumptions should get more sound. And when you have that feedback loop dialed in, what that essentially means is if the reports are clear and the facilitation process for the conversations are clear, then you as an owner don't need to be involved in that at some point. You can just have your team leaders, your project managers, like whoever is assuming those positions facilitate that feedback loop in their area of the business. And that to me is the flywheel that keeps the business humming along, that makes sure things are profitable, things are scaling, processes are maintaining themselves. And what's really, really important, you asked about like, how do we level up the conversation? The more you can empower the people in the grassroots to get involved in this, it does so many important things. It shows them and gets them connected to the value that their time tracking provides to the organization and to them. Right? They're seeing their time tracking data go to use. And in most organizations, time tracking data kind of goes off into the ether. And then the employee that tracked the time, they just come up with their own story about how it's being used. Maybe they're kind of paranoid and they think, oh, Marquis is going to be paying, like seeing if I tracked all 40 of my hours this week and he might try to dock my pay or have a disciplinary conversation if he sees that I'm not busy. Maybe they're thinking, oh, they're just you know, trying to squeeze me and trying to load me up. So I'm going to like pretend like I had more work than I actually had so that they don't give me more work to do because I'm, you know, I don't really want to work that hard. Like, and of course, none of that is true. You're doing this for all the right reasons. You just want things to be stable and you want to have good data and you want to do a good job of scoping and setting expectations for clients. So get them involved in that process. And the second powerful thing that it does is it creates ownership. Because if we do this right, when we ask the question, hey, Marquis, why did we spend half as much time on this as we estimated? And you go, oh, well, we did this new thing. We, we ran the discovery a slightly different way. And it actually allowed us to like get rid of a whole bunch of the back and forth that we would usually do with a client. And so it was far more efficient. And I go, Marquis, that is such an amazing idea. Would yeah. you be comfortable creating a documentation, training the company on how to do that so that we can apply that to the rest of our projects? That is so much better than me coming into the conversation and saying, this is how we should do things going forward, Marquis, I need you yeah. to take this and run with it. So the more we can get the team and the grassroots kind of coming up with and owning these ideas, then a lot of the problems that we run into with compliance and following processes and maintaining processes and having ownership, they start to kind of melt away because it's not us telling the team how to do things. They're empowered to come up with those ideas on their own. And often their ideas will be better than ours because the further and further away we get from the client work, the less context we have. So um, I think that's ultimately, that's the, the pipe dream, right? Is that 
the way that our data is flowing through the business is really just creating the context for us to do that. And if we do that, I think that's how the business scales and stays healthy and serves all the stakeholders well. And that's such a good news story, right? For the your team to hear that and receive that feedback from you and feel empowered to continue on, you know, and giving to the team. And then that will inspire other folks on your team to want to do the same thing as well. And like you said, that's how you grow and scale effectively. Uh, so good. Uh, we, we're running short on time, Marcel, and I want to ask you, you know, two big questions. One of them sure. is from your website. You talk about four different groups of, of agencies. There's the people that are in Fantasyland, then there's Growthville, <laughs> Hoarderville, and Firetown. Well, what is this about? Um, <laughs> how did you figure the, out these categories? And, you know, which of these, you know, customers are, are we working with in, a, in an ideal situation? Yeah, I mean, well, this is kind of describing, um, you know, there's this quadrant. So you can imagine the horizontal um, axis is being more data driven, right? So are you using data to make decisions in the business? And then the vertical axis is being process driven. Do you, you know, care about and, and put time into building processes so the way you do things is consistent? When you have no data and no process, usually you're in fire town, you know, you're putting out fires all day and the more you scale, the more painful it becomes. And most of us start out that way, right? That's just the way you kind of get off the ground in this industry. You start making promises to clients and then you turn around and go, okay, how am I going to deliver this to them? And you do that until you get to a scale where flying by the seat of your pants just doesn't work anymore. Usually a handful of people on the team. At that point, you're usually doing one of two things. You're either moving up the process ladder and you're starting to install more process. So if you do that without paying attention to data, then that's when you're going to start to essentially just potentially waste a lot of time on the wrong processes or you're going to optimize things that don't work and then it's just harder to change them, right? And I'm sure you've seen this where we way over-engineer a process that isn't mature and now it's just like harder. Yep. It, we just move slower now. It doesn't actually add yeah. any value. So that's the risk of becoming too process-driven too quickly without actually balancing that with data. The other side of that is starting to become obsessed with data but not really having any process. And that's when you just end up being uh, way more overwhelmed and confused by the data. And you end up with all this work to do to track things, but it's not actually adding any value to the business. Where we want to do go is, is it's a it's a, sorry, like a horizontal, um, or a diagonal, sorry, okay. I'm getting my sure. geometry mixed up, a diagonal transition where we're balancing kind of paying attention to the right numbers at the right time and scaling the complexity of that appropriately for the business, like not trying to become an enterprise uh, company in terms of doing all this very detailed financial planning and analysis, while also adding the right amounts of process at the right time. And the data can help tell us where we can create more rigid process and where things still need to get figured out. And they can help guide us on prioritizing those things. So they move in unison and we become both data and process driven. That's when we land in Growthville. And the very upper right-hand corner of that quadrant is where we're not only able to get feedback and drive process improvement, we're able to see into the future. That's really what we're all trying to do as an agency owner, right? Is say, hey, if we close this deal, exactly how much time will we need? How many people will we need? Do we have the capacity for that? What will our utilization look like? How much profit do we expect to make from that? Right, And that's possible. It's actually not as hard as you think. But when you can get to that place, I mean, is that ever a different place to be running the business from when you can see into the future? And so that's really what we're trying to get our clients to is that very, very upper right hand corner where not only they know what's going on, but they can predict what's going to happen because their systems and their processes are working together to achieve that. Brilliant. So well said. Yeah, I can definitely uh, 
um, relates to um, every one of those scenarios. Because I think at you know at, at any point in time, if you're an entrepreneur, you've been there, you've experienced yeah. those. Like when you said, you know, fire town, it's like that was me probably six years ago, where I'm like, I need to figure this stuff out, right? Like I don't have any data, I don't have any process. Got to figure this out. Now here we are, fast forwarded, and uh, you know, doing better than ever. So thanks for breaking that down. Um, we got a couple minutes here. I'd love for you to break down what you feel to be the ideal tech stack for anyone in this space that needs to look at data, needs to visualize that data to make you know more business, um, you know, savvy decisions, um, even around like how you manage your time. I'd love to know how you're running, what you recommend to your customers and what your stack looks like. I'm probably not going to give you the answer that you're looking for here, um, but I'll give you the best answer that I have, which is there are three critical pieces to your agency reporting stack. Well, really, there's four. There's your finance tool. That's probably going to be QuickBooks or Zero. If you're using something other than that, then you're probably just making things harder for yourself. Pay the $20, $30 a month, get the thing that all the accountants know how to use, and your life will be easier for it, and do the things I talked about earlier so that that data is good. And then we talk about kind of the much more timely non-financial stuff. There are three important things that you should have a record of somewhere. Number one is what we call the payroll grid. You should know and have a record of who works for me, how many hours a week do they work, what do I pay them, how many you know delivery hours do we expect them to hit, how much vacation time and so on do you get. Because if you have that record, then you can calculate your capacity and your projected utilization, your target utilization for any time period. The second critical piece is your project grid. And this should just be a record somewhere that contains all the assumptions about your projects. How much are we getting paid? How much of that is AGI? How many hours do we expect this to take? And maybe even breaking that down into a couple of roles or a couple of departments. What's the start and end date? If you have that information, now guess what? You have your capacity for any given time period. You have your planned hours for any given time period. You can now see into the future. Then it's just a game of let's make sure that those assumptions get more accurate over time. And then the last piece is time tracking. Just make sure you're getting good, clean, structured time tracking data on a regular basis. Now you have the three critical pieces. And with those three pieces, you can forecast capacity. You can calculate utilization. You can calculate estimates versus actuals. You can calculate average billable rate. And you can calculate your actual utilization for any given time period. You can get all your critical metrics if you have those three things going on. And so what tools should you use? It's going to come down to what your data schema used to look like, but really the ones that your team's going to use, that's the most important thing. The best time tracking tool is the one your team actually uses every week. The best project management tool is the one your team actually sticks to the process on. Um, And the best place to visualize your data is the place where you're able to pull the data in, clean it and validate it, and then turn it into charts and reports. I think the biggest mistake I see people make is they try to automate this without some kind of middle layer. And the problem is your team will never be perfect at data input. Someone's going to mess up the naming convention. Someone's going to forget their timer ran over the weekend and log a 99-hour entry. If you let that go straight to the report, right, we've all been here, you spend more time when you're pulling up your reports going, why does this look so funny? And then going and combing through all your source data, then getting value. So we really believe in this kind of ETL kind of framework, extract, transform, and then load. So have a middle layer. For most people, this is like a Google sheet, an Airtable, a Smartsheet, something where you can pull all the data in, do some transformation, do some tidying, clean things up, make sure all the data is good, and then load it into whatever reporting environment works for you. Could be a Google Sheet, could be an Airtable, could be a Data Studio, could be a Clipfolio, a Domo, a Tableau. Doesn't matter. Whatever you're comfortable with, 
And I think Google Sheets for most people is more than enough. Um, and that's still what we run a lot of our client reports on, mostly because you're just comfortable with it. So specific tools, you know, I could run through the list, but there's so many good ones out there. And you know this, there's there's like a half a dozen um, project management tools where it's like, you could use any of those and they're probably fine, right? But yeah. are you using them is the question. And that's the more important thing. Thank you for answering in that way, because it's not the answer I wanted, but it's the answer we all needed to hear. <laughs> so thanks so much. All right, Marcel Petipot, parakeeto.com. Uh, aside from the website, where are you hanging out these days? Where can people find out more? And is there anything that they can take away today just to understand yes. this more and learn more about your process? Yeah, if you're listening to this and you're maybe a little more confused than you were coming into the episode, maybe you're driving, you're at the gym, you want to take some notes, I have a toolkit, the agency profitability toolkit. You can grab it at parakeeto.com forward slash toolkit. And it's full of training videos, templates, spreadsheets, cheat sheets, checklists that help you basically measure all the basics that I explained in today's podcast episode absolutely free. So go grab that. If you want to nerd out with more stuff like this, we have the Agency Profit Podcast. Marquis has been on it. So we have good guests. Marquis is one of them. So check us out everywhere that you can get access to podcasts. And come find me on LinkedIn if you want to nerd out. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Beautiful. What a gift. Thanks so much for being here, Marcel. Appreciate your time. We'll catch up with you soon. Likewise, Marquis. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the In Systems We Trust podcast with Marquis Murray. If you liked what you heard today, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Don't forget to rate the episode and share it with a friend. Head over to thinkditto.com to learn more about how the team at Ditto can help your business scale by implementing the systems and processes needed to get you there.